this morning we're going to finally make the switch uh, into Romans 8. Now, we're in Romans 7 today. We're going to begin in Romans 7 and spend some time there. And it, but Romans 7 is very dense, so you might, if you've been following along with us in the series, you might be like, how are you going to get to 8 today? Well, we could probably spend all summer on chapter 7, but we're actually not, we, we, we just feel like uh, it'd, be, it'd make more sense and we would do well to, instead of going like really line by line by line through chapter 7, to more treat it as a whole. Treat it as, so we're going to treat it as a whole today, and we're going to kind of pull out a couple of the most important things and the big idea, rather than going through every single line kind of with a fine-tooth comb. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Romans 7. Um, we're going to read Romans 7, 13 through 25, and then we're going to carry over into Romans 8, and we're going to go 1 through 4. So I'm just going to read that to you right now, and we're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to, uh, then we're going to just talk about it. So 7, 13 says, Did that which is good then... Bring death to me. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's like a bit of a tongue twister almost. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight, notice that word delight, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law with law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to actually turn the next to the next chapter. We're going to actually read chapter 8 for the first four verses. Uh, and a lot of times we separate these, but I'm telling you, you cannot read Romans 7 without Romans 8, and you definitely cannot read the beginning of Romans 8 without first having a grasp on Romans 7. So this is what Romans 8 then says. It says, There is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, this is so crucial, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the passage that we just read in Romans 7, it is one of the most comforting 
yet one of the most confusing passages in all of the Bible because Paul basically tells us, okay, I want to do good. I want to do good, but then I do bad. I, I, I keep hearing God say, do this, and then I hear it in my mind, I say, I can do this thing, and I begin to try to do good, and then I don't do it. I, I know what I'm supposed to do, but then I don't do it. Now, obviously for you and for me, hearing the Apostle Paul's inward struggle, it certainly should give us some comfort as we navigate a life in which we too have to do the right thing and figure out what the right thing to do, right? We know what God's called us to do. Most of us have a decent idea of what it is that God has put in our hearts to do. We know basically what he wants from us. We know what the Christian thing is to do in most instances, but sometimes we just don't do them. Sometimes we just do not do those things. But I want to remind you before we get too into this, something very significant uh, that Drew and James said last week when they, when they were talking about Romans 7. They said this, they said, Romans 7 is not, it is not a picture of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. That's not what it is. So even though it's comforting that Paul is identifying with something that we can relate with, and he absolutely is, God does have more for us than just a life in which we always do what we don't want to do. Paul was connecting with that struggle of the day. That's one of the things he was doing. If you understand anything about the philosophers in that day, they were already saying what Paul says. They're already saying, hey, uh, we know what we should be doing, but we don't do it. But Paul's actually doing something a lot bigger than that. Well, Paul's, Paul's doing something much, much bigger than that. It, it's a lot bigger than just giving us an excuse to be like the rest of the world. Because everybody struggled with right and wrong. There was a Hebrew phrase in that day called yetzer hara. And, uh, and yetzer hara, uh, we've taught on this before, it's the concept of the evil inclination. It, it's basically that there's a war raging inside of every human being. It's a tug of war between what's right and what's wrong, darkness and light. And the, the concept is, is, it's, is that typically human nature is drawn toward that which is evil. And that was a Hebrew concept. And it seemed to kind of be the story of Israel. They knew what was right, but they were drawn to what was wrong. So Paul, he's not trying to make you feel fine for all of the times in your life that you followed that evil inclination. That's not what he's trying to do. Christ, you have to hear this, Christ did not just die so that you could do the things that you don't want to do. It's very important. Christ died so that you could have wholeness. And until you're able to see this thing, this entire picture, from a much bigger perspective than just you never being able to get out of a sinful pattern that you're in that controls your life, if you can't see beyond that, then you're never going to be able to experience the true resurrected life that Paul promises that all Christians have access to in Romans 6. He says you have access to this resurrected life. Christ died so that you can live a life in which you get to the end of every day and you sit back on your couch and you reflect and you realize, man, God, you opened some amazing doors for me today. You did some amazing things in my life. I battled through some really hard things today, but those things were actually shaping me and molding me into the person that I need to be so that I can face tomorrow with a little more strength, a little bit stronger. And the, the trials and the struggles that will come tomorrow, I'm going to be more prepared for because of the things I've experienced today. That's part of the journey toward wholeness. We did a whole teaching on that. Yes, it is true that Paul did things that he did not want to do, and sometimes you will too. 
And sometimes I do too. But the gospel is so much more than just you struggling through every single day, kind of just sinning your way to heaven because what Jesus did is so powerful and so amazing. We've got to get beyond that part of the gospel. Contained in the gospel is the hope and the reality of every single thing that you need to be who you are supposed to be today. I can't help but kind of reflect on, uh, on something else that they said last week. Because this verse in, in Romans, Romans 7, 7, really is a springboard into everything that we're learning about right now. Um, and they were talking about how Paul said, had the law not said thou shalt not covet, had it not said that, I, I never would have known what it was to covet. But then a couple of verses later, if you note this very carefully, in verse 10, it actually says, the very commandment, thou shalt not covet, that promised life to me, proved to be death to me. Well, what is that? What is that? See, the 10th commandment, and again, they touched on this last week, but I want to make this super clear to you, and I need to reiterate this for where I'm going to take you today. The 10th commandment never, ever said, thou shalt not covet. That was not the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment very clearly is, thou shalt not covet that which does not belong to you. The rabbis actually said and they taught that all of the commandments were contained in this one commandment, the 10th commandment. And in fact, they actually considered the 10th commandment to be a reward, not a command. Now this is huge in understanding the rest of this section. That's why I'm taking a couple of minutes to reiterate this. The Hebrew word covet is the word humad. It, it does not mean to want something that's not yours. It means to delight. It means to delight in something. To delight. That's the Hebrew word. The Greek word's a little different. But in Hebrew, that's what the word covet means. So they considered it a reward because they said, if you keep the first commandment, and you love the Lord your God, and you, and God, you have no other gods before him, and you keep the Sabbath, and you actually find rest, and you cultivate that in your life, and you honor your parents, and your life, will, the days will go well with you. If you don't commit adultery, and you actually honor and respect your own marriage, you don't hurt other people, you don't lie, then what's going to happen is you're going to have a life that you can delight in in yourself. You don't need somebody else's life. You'll have a life that you can covet for yourself, and you won't for a moment want somebody else's life. The 10th commandment is a declaration that you, in fact, can be whole in your life today. You can have peace. You can have joy. You can delight in the things that God has given you. Is that not the ultimate reward, like, in this life? Like, I know beyond this, we have heaven to look forward to. We have all these amazing things that salvation will bring us eventually. But in this life, is the ultimate reward not to have a life that you can actually be like, God, I'm whole. I'm a whole person. I'm grateful for who you've created me. I'm grateful for the life that you've given me. Without ever having to look over the fence and wonder if what your neighbor has is better. That's the intent of the 10th commandment. Delight in your own life. You won't want another. Delight in your own wife. You won't want another. Delight in your own field. You won't always be looking across the fence at what your neighbor has. Delight in your own house, and then you won't want somebody else's. Delight in your own garden. You know, I think about this for our community. And the, the, the garden that our community is trying to cultivate it in, with this reconciliation table in this project. And sometimes it's like, okay, you're a broken record. Stop talking about this thing. But listen to me. This is very, very important. This has been really on my heart because I don't think that everybody quite understands the significance of what's going on over there. 
I don't think people realize the significance of how every single day that we go and we work the ground that we have, we're actually creating a new world for somebody. And the more that we do that, the more delight we're able to find in our purpose. And the more that God's saying, listen, I'm going to use this to do something incredible. God has given us so much. And if you come and you in, in, involve yourself in that and you cultivate that and you delight in what it is that God's doing there, you won't always be thinking about the life that you don't have. Instead, you're going to help create a life that the other people can have. And you'll be resting in and delighting in what you do have. Church, God has given us so much. He's doing so many amazing things in our community right now, and in our city right now, and in our church right now. And we can take time to recognize that, and we must. And if we allow ourselves to truly see what he's doing, I'm telling you, you're going to be delighted. You're going to be like, wow, God, we get to be a part of that. But for most people, the 10th commandment is not a reward. For most people, the 10th commandment is not a reward because they've not done the other nine. Maybe they've done some of the nine, but they've not done all of them. They've not done the things in life that God has laid out for them in which God has promised, if you can do this thing, if you can live this way, if you let God be first, if you listen and obey, you're going to have wholeness. The 10th commandment is a promise of wholeness. Listen, that is the heart of the entire law. That's what people don't understand. But Paul did understand this. The entire heart of the law is how do we get to a place that we're healthy? How do we sort out the things that need to be sorted out so that we can have the life that God dreams for us, that we, that we actually have the potential that's actually in us to have? And you get these areas um, that the law, and what the law does is it shows you these areas. It'll shine a light and say, hey, this area right here, that's not healthy. This is not healthy. Dig in a little to that area and see what it reveals. See, see what you find. Because this right here, you know you're not supposed to be doing this. And what it does is it causes a conviction. Hear me here. I, I'm learning this more and more in my own life and in my family and my marriage and all the things that we're kind of always sorting through. Sometimes what happens in life is, is we work on symptoms. And I'm very, very guilty of this in my own life. We work on symptoms as if symptoms are the cause of what's actually going on in our lives. But symptoms are actually there to show us what's really happening. So for my wife and I, for Don and I, we could be going through something, and to me, I will want to work out the exact issue at hand. I want to work out exactly what's going on in the moment, and in my mind, if I think, hey, if we sort this out, we win the day. Everything's good, right? But what Don will do often is she'll show me how the thing that has happened is actually a result of something deeper that is actually having an effect on us and on our relationship and on our marriage. And so she'll prompt me to actually do the hard work of figuring out what's happening at the root of this. Where's this rooted in? Where's this coming from? So to her, which is something that I don't do as well, is she actually thinks it's a good thing when things happen that cause tensions because those things are illuminators to bigger issues. And if those issues are never brought to the surface, then we're never going to be able to bring healing to them. Well, that's exactly what the law does right there in just in one quick little story. That's what the law does. It's like when somebody goes to the doctor and they go for something basic, like uh, they have a cough or they have a, uh, a bruise or, or whatever it might be, uh, um, a, a sore throat. Like our, our niece just recently, she had... Um, she, she had a cold and then, and then all of a sudden it just went out of control and then it turns out it was, turned out to be like a heart condition. Or you go to the doctor and you think, hey, we're, I just have these bruises, but really it is cancer. And it's, it's not bad that you go to the doctor for the bruise. Had you not paid attention to the symptom, 
then you never would have found the root of the problem. But because they discovered the root, they can actually begin to work to fix it. That's sort of how that works. That's what the law does. The law itself shows you specific symptoms of a much bigger problem. And that's what Paul's saying here. The problem, the much bigger problem, is sin as a force, as sin as a power, an entity. It's sin as something that actually has control in your life and has control in our world. And its whole purpose is to rob you of wholeness so that you can't be who you're supposed to be and so you won't delight in the life that you're supposed to be delighting in. We're going to see in just a moment. That's exactly what Paul is saying that the law ultimately does. It takes all of the symptoms, and this is huge, and most people don't get this. It takes all of the symptoms, the things that we may call sin, and it actually magnifies the problem so that we can actually find the root. So when Paul says this about the commandment, about the, about the 10th commandment, he, he uses that commandment as a way of saying, okay, what the law does is it shows me something to me that's not good. I didn't even know it wasn't good, but it isn't good. It helps me. It, it points that out to me. It shines a bright light on the areas of my life that are not as they should be, that are weighing me down, that are hurting me. And it's not the light that's the problem. That's something you've got to understand. The fact is, the, f- the fact is that it's showing me the parts of my life that need to change. That's supposed to be something that helps us find resolve and find wholeness and helps us come to a place where we can actually heal. But the problem is, is throughout history, so many people have taken that light and they've used it as a weapon against other people. We see tons of stories of that in the Bible with Jesus and the Pharisees and how they're using the law as a weapon to hurt others. And then for many people, what most of us do is we use, we allow that light, we allow the light that the law shines to actually expose to us the parts that need to change, but instead of actually allowing ourselves to be changed by them, we just let ourselves be condemned by it. So, we're, so we allow our lives to be condemned by the very light that was given to us as a guide. It's very, very important to understand the, the way, the, how it was in the Old Testament so you can understand what's going on in the New Testament. Remember, for those of you who have been with us, the Ten Commandments are a marriage ketubah. They are a contract, a covenant agreement between God and his people in Israel. And the law was given as a guide for Israel for how to be human in a world where all you've ever known is slavery. All you've ever known is being dehumanized. All you've ever known is somebody else owning you and treating you that way and oppressing you. That was the entire life of Israel before they escaped Egypt. And that is where Paul's at in this thing. He's not saying the law is bad. He's saying that the law was created for good, but yet at the same time, the law gave sin an opportunity, and sin took that opportunity. Look very closely at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What the law does is it actually makes sin more sinful. It makes sin sinful beyond measure. But it's not because it makes one sin bigger. It's because it actually takes sin and it puts it all in one place. One uncomprehensible place where I can't even look at this thing in its entirety without realizing, oh my gosh, I'm beyond repair. I'm so far gone. I cannot save myself. I'm beyond lost. I can't dig myself out of this mess. 
right? It takes all the sin, it puts it all in one place. Because if you can get it all in one place, then it can be dealt with all at one time. And that is the point of the law. Paul's point in Romans 7 is that he can't keep the law. He wants to keep it, but he keeps failing. Israel was no better. They wanted to keep it, but they kept failing. They kept doing wrong. That was Israel's story. But you put the law all in one place, you can deal with it all at one time. Notice this transition into chapter 8, because you have to see the way that 8 and 7 go together here. The word is therefore. Therefore. People love to quote Romans 8.1. It's an amazing verse. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's one of the most significant passages in all of Paul's writings. But it's not just significant simply because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Paul is talking about the law. He's talking about the law that had forever condemned everyone because nobody ever kept it. Nobody could live up to it. And the only reason that Paul can say what he says in 8.1 is because he understands what he's about to say in 8.3. Because in 8.3, there is something that is condemned. And it's not you. And it's not me. And it's not the law. And it's not Jesus. This is the thing that Paul's been building up to the entire time. Everywhere in Romans, from chapter 1 and 2, when he gives everybody this, puts everybody on this crazy list of sins. Everyone is guilty. And then he builds up from there, all the way through to chapter 7, when he says that he, just like Israel, he, he can't keep the law. He's all leading to this one moment where we bring sin all to one place and we crucify the entire thing. Galatians 3 21 through 26 really helps us understand this concept. I'm just going to read this to you real quick. You can read with me on the screen. Same writer, Paul, says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It put it all in one place so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was how we created that life that God intended for us before God came. It protected us before Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. The scripture actually imprisoned, is what it says. It imprisoned everything under sin so that Jesus could deal with it all at once. It showed everyone that righteousness was never going to be achieved by the law because it showed them all the ways that they failed it. But it shined a light on a very specific area a very specific surface area that only proves that there's something deeper going on. Now look at Romans 8.3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin. There's a couple things here. First of all, the literal translation here, even though I put it in parentheses because the ESV doesn't translate it this way, but the actual literal there is, uh, so in the likeness of sinful flesh for a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now the reason this is so significant, even though a lot of translations miss it, some do, some don't, is first of all, he condemned sin in the flesh, right? And he did it by being a sin offering. Now a sin offering is described in Leviticus 4 and in Numbers uh, 15. In, in ancient Hebrew culture, there, most of you probably know this by now because we've talked about this before, but there are several different purposes of several different offerings in those days. There was a burnt offering, there was a grain offering, there was a peace offering. There's a lot of different kinds of offerings. But one thing that made a sin offering unique was that it was actually an offering to make right a sin in which you did not want to commit. In Numbers 15... We get the laws for unintentional and intentional sins. And the offering that you make when it's an unintentional sin, a sin that you did not first set your heart upon and then go and do, was the sin offering. A sin that you did not want to do, but you still found yourself doing, was a sin offering. That's what it was called. Now, Romans 7, more than any other place in the New Testament, is a testimony to the fact that we do things that we do not want to do. We fall into sins that we don't necessarily intend to fall into. We don't necessarily set our eyes upon falling into. And yet the entire thing gets brought together right here in 8.3 when we finally see that the very things that we did not want to do, Jesus was the exact offering that the law required for sins of that nature. Look very closely at this verse. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as a sin offering, he condemns sin in the flesh. Look closely what he's saying. God has done what the law could not do. He, he did it through Jesus. And through Jesus, God condemned what? Sin. He condemned, condemned sin. This is incredibly theologically important. God did not condemn Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law, thus making him the only vessel with which sin could actually put the light, put, the, put, put law in a light and actually be dealt with it. Like bring the law, show him, hey, I can actually do this, nobody else could. Let's put this all in one place so we can deal with it. And through his flesh, sin was condemned once and for all when it died with Jesus. But Jesus was not the one condemned. Sin was the one condemned. Jesus lived a perfect life. To be condemned literally means to be declared guilty. Now, for those of you who know we've been studying justification, to be justified means to be declared righteous. Okay? So, another way to read this first line in Romans would be, would be to say, therefore, nobody is declared guilty who's in Christ. Because sin was already declared guilty and it was dealt with. Remember earlier in the series, we are on Romans 1, 18? We talked about how we talk about wrath and how wrath is actually the word character. And it says the character of God is poured out, is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness, injustice. Because God cannot stand forever by while injustice reigns supreme in our world. God cannot forever stand by 
while people remove him from everything? God cannot forever stand by while the body of sin rules the world and robs his people of their purpose. His character will not let that happen. So once and for all, he did something. He did an eternal thing. He put sin onto the flesh of Jesus and he condemned sin once and for all. We've now come to a place in history where the character of God is revealed once and for all. And again, the theological implications of this are huge and people miss this all the time. The idea that God's wrath fell upon Jesus himself, like God actually had to put his anger somewhere so he put it on Jesus, it's a common teaching but it misses the entire point of the whole gospel. The gospel is God so loved. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And his son did not sin, though he was completely capable of it. Hebrews tells us that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is tempted and tried just like we are. He could have sinned just like we could, only he did not sin. He lived without it. And he came to save us, he came to rescue us, and he came to redeem us. And yet we killed him. And according to everything that we read in Romans, even though Jesus never sinned, when he was crucified, sin was condemned. He did that on our behalf. Sin was declared guilty and it was put to death. But Jesus himself was never guilty. When God looks at Jesus, he declares him righteous. And because your sin has now been condemned in the flesh of Jesus, now when God sees you, he sees Jesus. Which means that now when God sees you, he declares you Righteous. This is the pinnacle moment of justification. When it all falls into one place, it is dealt with forever, and God can say, forever you are declared like Jesus. Righteous. Finally, in closing, we must remind you that death didn't just occur so that you could stop sinning. You should stop sinning. Please don't live in that. But Jesus did not die on a cross just to make you stop sinning. Jesus died on the cross so that sin could be condemned, to give you the ability to live out the type of life that you were created to live out. And there's only one way to do that. It's verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, But according to the Spirit, as long as you live your life in your own flesh, you're going to keep going back to your old ways. You're going to keep doing things you don't want to do. The law will always remind you of all the things that you will never, ever, ever be able to live up to. But there is another way to live. And it's according to the Spirit. It's to let the Holy Spirit actually take shape in your life and work through you and speak through you and guide you and lead you to the places that you would never be able to go on your own. This is crucial to understanding how it relates to the law. Because Paul, he's about to dive headfirst into all things spirit and all things of what a spirit life looks like. And the next few weeks are going to be that and you've got to get here because they're going to be super crucial. It's important. He's going to talk about how through the Holy Spirit we can actually experience freedom 
And we can actually be people who help other people experience freedom. We can actually be agents of change in our communities. By the Holy Spirit, we can actually work for justice in a world that often has none or has a very small amount of it. By the Holy Spirit, when our world feels like there is no way, a way will be made. And we, we needed to take today to bring some closure to the concept of our flesh. Because if you keep living in the flesh, you're still under the law. The entire point is that God crucified it. But I want to encourage you this week as we prepare to get into some incredible scriptures coming up to really seek the Holy Spirit in your life because he really is everything. We don't have the law anymore. We don't have to follow that anymore. But in the same way that the law shined a spotlight on the things in our lives that needed to change, the New Testament tells us that it is the Holy Spirit's job now to convict us of the things in our lives that need to change, to help us sort out the areas that are keeping us from being who we're supposed to be, that are keeping us from the wholeness that we're supposed to have. The law showed us the best way to live. That is what it did. It was not evil. It was the best thing for them in that moment. It was the best way to live their life. And if they could have followed it, they would have had a life that they could delight in. And they wouldn't want anybody else's life. Israel wouldn't have kept going after all these other gods and all these other things. They would have delighted in the life that God had given them, but they could not follow it. The law brings wisdom, and the law guides people through difficult times. But now the Spirit does that. The Spirit now gives wisdom, and the Spirit now guides us through difficult times. You know, the whole problem in the Garden of Eden, and again, we've done a lot on this, we've built up to this, but the whole problem in the Garden was that God wanted to teach Adam and Eve about his true knowledge, about his wisdom. He wanted to navigate it for them. He wanted to be there life coach and guide him through that. He wanted them to live in his understanding of good and evil, and, it, and he wanted to give them that. He had a life that he had designed for them, a best way to live, but instead they took it on their own. They opted to be their own gods and write their own rules and said, I want to be the one that decides good and evil. I want to be decide what's right, what's wrong. That's why we needed the law in the first place, guys. Because someone tried to figure something out on themselves and human beings have been doing it ever since. But Romans 5 makes it very clear that Jesus undid Genesis 3. And those who are in him don't have to live that way anymore. One thing he says in John 14 is he says, uh, I have to go so the Spirit can come. And he explains that when the Holy Spirit actually fills us, we're going to have the power that Jesus has. When the Spirit fills our lives, we're going to actually be able to reflect Jesus to our world and bring hope to the broken areas. The Spirit of God brings peace to the situations that feel totally broken, that feel totally hopeless. And when you allow God to fill you, and when you allow God to use you, you become that vessel of hope who now gets to be a part of bringing justice and hope and equality and peace and unity into the world. All the things that the law would have done if we would have kept it, but nobody could. Without the Spirit, church, I'm telling you, we'll never be who we're supposed to be. We'll never live the life that Jesus lived. He was filled with the Spirit the entire time, and we can be filled with that same exact Spirit. His entire ministry, he operated in that filling every moment of his life. He didn't turn it on and off depending on the day, depending on the circumstances, depending on what was at stake in that moment. Church, 
we need the Holy Spirit. We need him. Paul in another place says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I, I genuinely with all my heart believe that we are entering into a season as a church that we will not make it through without the Holy Spirit as our guide. But with his help, I believe it has the potential to be the most significant season that we have ever experienced. I believe more people will encounter God than we could ever imagine. But it has to be a moving of the Spirit. It has to be a move of the Spirit and of us being filled with that Spirit and then flowing in that filling so that our lives can then be an outpouring of what the Spirit has put in us. Church, we fulfill the, the law. We fulfill the law, just like this says, when we love our neighbor as ourselves. We fulfill the law when we look out for the least of these. We fulfill the law when we take care of each other. And Paul says that we, we, we can do it. We can actually fulfill the law. But we cannot do it by our flesh like Israel tried to do. We can only do it by the Spirit. And Spirit, fill us today. Make us new. Make us who we were created to be.